Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don, as usual. And we also have returning guests, uh, Mike, Professor Pizzagate, and Khalid. So today is going to be a fun one. We're going to be talking about William Dudley Pelly, who is best known as the uh, founder of the Silver Legion, the Silver Shirts. That was a fascist organization in the 20s and 30s. But uh, there's this other side to Pelly that is interesting to look at, which is his interests in esotericism and he's really the origin of a lot of ideas that seem to have percolated through the 20th century in various ways uh things about ufos uh, ancient aliens all that kind of thing and it's really interesting to look at how that all ties into far right thought uh, i put together a ton of material and we are probably not going to get to this all in one episode it may take us a few to get through all of this, so we're just going to kind of take our time and uh, take a nice uh, leisurely stroll through the history of this guy. So today I think we're going to be taking a look at his life in particular, and then next episode we'll be looking at his influence as it kind of carried on through the 20th century. So uh, yeah, let's get started here. So he was born in 1890. He was the son of a New England Methodist minister, and he went on to become a Vermont newspaper editor as well as a short story writer and a novelist. He began publishing his stories in 1910 and he was uh, pretty successful with these to some extent, enough so that he was able to move to Hollywood and start uh, working as a screenwriter. Uh, there he wrote a few movies that were marginal successes including a Case at Law in 1917, which was a anti-alcohol western starring Dick Rawson. He wrote One Thing at a Time O'Day in 1919 about a well-meaning buffoon who falls in love with a circus bareback rider, only to have to sway her affections away from the circus's nefarious strongman. So sort of like a classic incel story. And I thought that was kind of funny just in light <laughs> of where the far right stands these days. Um his most uh, acclaimed film was uh, What Women Love in 1920, uh, which starred Annette, the diving Venus Kellerman, as a bathing suit wearing libertine who was wooed by a chaste young man who saves her from the clutches of an aggressive professional boxer. Uh, again, there's sort of a pattern here with the stories that he likes to write. And uh, I mean, he, he kind of got into the Hollywood circles like he actually befriended uh, Lon Chaney Jr., who is famous for his betrayal of the uh, the Phantom in The Phantom of the Opera. He did a film with him called The Light in the Dark in 1922, and uh, they would often spend evenings and weekends together in New York, and uh, Chaney often cooked dinner for the two of them. Yeah, I watched The Light in the Dark before coming on the show. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, it's actually a really interesting movie, um, and Lon Chaney's in that one. Like, uh, as you've mentioned, like, it's actually really interesting in light of his later career, uh, because really, well, it's also kind of an incel story in that it's about, like, this, uh, sort of, like, thief, the sort of low-down, like, guy played by Lon Chaney, kind of, like, sort of an anti-hero, like, you know, salt-of-the-earth guy, uh, and he meets this woman who, you know, is in sorrow because, uh, you know, she broke up with her boyfriend in England, and uh, she becomes, like, very ill, you know, uh, after trying to find a job or whatever. She's looking for work, and she gets sick in the process. And then she ends up 
telling uh, the story to him, which is actually like uh, they acted out, you know, the story of the Holy Grail. Like it's kind of like a past, like an Arthurian sort of pastiche about about the Holy Grail. And it turns out that her boyfriend in England finds the Holy Grail like in a wood, you know, uh, and uh, he brings it to America and is having like an exhibition of it. And uh, this guy decides to go and actually steal it. And the appropriately with the title, the lighting in the movie is like very good, and the effects are very good for the time. You know, it's a silent film, but you know, you see the Holy Grail kind of hovering, and the the sort of uh, effects centerpiece of the movie is that it has this glow in the dark. And of course, you know, you mentioned like his esoteric interests, like later in his career, and you know, obviously his fascism. And this is like probably the key theme in like right wing fascism, like right wing uh, esoteric fascism is the idea of the Holy Grail, the Grail Quest. Um, but in this story, you know, this thief guy has to go and actually steal the Holy Grail from this guy uh, so that he can cure this girl that he kind of loves, but, uh, or, you know, at least has this very strong affection for. But then, of course, she ends up getting back with the other guy at the end. So kind of cucked uh, in the in the conclusion of the story. But um, I, the idea of stealing the Holy Grail was very fascinating to me because this guy's like kind of a con artist and a grifter in a way, but at the same time he's able to reconcile that with you know this higher spiritual purpose that he that he has uh later in life and you know that's one of his earlier works uh yeah it's a i would recommend uh, anybody to watch it if you want to watch like one of his movies i would maybe highlight that one because yeah it's very interesting and it has this this interesting theme of the holy grail yeah that is interesting uh it, you know in my research i have it these early years don't seem super you know notable in terms of any kind of foreshadowing of his you know what he would go on to do later on but uh you know i haven't seen the movies i haven't read any of the his writing or or anything from that period so uh that that's interesting to hear that uh, from what i also understand that movie had some like it was um it was sort of like an, a technical achievement in terms of the lighting I, I don't really know the specifics on that but it was sort of seen as like it, it did some new kind of uh, groundbreaking things in terms of lighting and stuff. So yeah, it's kind of interesting that like he, he wasn't like some nobody exactly, you know, like he certainly wasn't like setting the world on fire or anything, but he was, you know, had a, had a solid career yeah. going on. It was, yeah, it was kind of like more of a blockbustery type movie. Like it wasn't like, you know, some kind of like ramshackle operation. It was like a, a pretty big deal. I mean, Lon Chaney Jr. was like a huge star. You know, so, yeah, like, um, and it's, they actually kind of look similar. Uh, in watching the movie, I, I imagine that, like, he kind of saw himself as being this sort of thief character. And, yeah, I think uh, it reminds me of, like, uh, I read one of his books called The Book of Revelation or something, where he's kind of reminiscing about his early years. And he says, like, uh, he tells this story that's uh, kind of sad about how he saw, like, a magazine ad, like, you know, kind of like an X-ray specs, you know, type thing, like, you know, get instantly muscular or whatever. But it was for, you know, a, a full printing outfit for just one dollar, you know, which at the time had come hard. Uh, you know, it was hard for, like, a kid to get a whole dollar, like, especially, you know, during his childhood. Um, and so he sent away for this full printing outfit because, you know, uh, as you said, his whole dream is really to be a writer. And that's, like, a very consistent thing, like, his passion for for writing uh and you know the kind of self-expression but anyway where this comes uh the kid it's like it was hard to even tell like what actually had arrived like uh from his description of it but it was like this dinky thing where there were only like two stamps for letters and he couldn't even like spell his own name with the kit 
uh, and his father, you know, this Methodist preacher who was, like, very, you know, hard, and him seems like a very, like, kind of cruel man was like, you know, well, let that be a lesson to, you know, never buy anything that you can't see with, you know, your own eyes before you buy it, which is, like, what he ended up selling to people uh, for most of his later career. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, that's funny in light of, you know, like the previous episode we did with you about the occult, about how it's all about like the hidden reality behind things. That's kind of an interesting thing for him to say. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you kind of picked up maybe about his childhood, his parents, anything like that? I, I didn't get much information on that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, like I read a couple, you know, I skimmed like a couple of his words. They're like very monotonous and very boring. Like, you know, I just wanted to get a sense of his like cosmology and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, uh, his idea of his experiences. Like I read his books, like uh, a lot of them, like the details about his childhood are prologue to like kind of his spiritual experiences uh, that he would later have. That being the aspect of him that was more interesting to me. Um, but uh, yeah, like... Uh, other than like that aspect that you know he had kind of like a disciplinarian father he was kind of like uh you know he grew up like kind of being traditionally religious like you said you know um and uh he kind of felt persecuted by the strictness of the religion um and you know he would watch other kids around him he mentioned like doing playing animal games uh so to tell whether what he meant by that he said like the other kids are doing animal play uh, I think in Seven Minutes of Eternity, maybe he mentioned that, and I don't know if he meant they were impersonating animals, but, I mean, it's neither here nor there, but, or if he just meant it in some kind of metaphorical way, like they were playing, like, carefree animals while he had to kind of do factory labor at that age. So, like, uh, I think at 14, he started, like, working in a factory or something, and, uh, you know, he also, like, felt, you know, the Lord had just, the Lord that he was raised with had just, like, given him suffering, and that kind of, by the time he was going off to war later on in World War One, he was very disillusioned with Christianity. Right. That's interesting. Um, yeah, so if we get back to the, uh, the early 20s, he's in Hollywood. He is sort of falling out of love with Hollywood at this point. Um, it says here, this is from a quote from the book by Scott Beekman. Uh, William Dudley Pelley, A Life in Right-Wing Extremism and the Occult. I'm going to refer to this book quite a bit. It's probably the most in-depth single book that's just focused on Pelley. Uh, so it says here that Pelley's daily interaction with the glamorous, cockeyed, crazy gang, booze-lit, and money-junk children in Arabian night palaces of papier-mâché, however, proved significant for the screenwriter. Increasingly distressed over the actions of screen stars and Jewish studio moguls and their influence on American society, Pelly began to develop the racist attitudes that shaped the rest of his life. Already deeply troubled by the changes being wrought in America, in Hollywood, Pelly found a ready scapegoat on which to pin the, the blame for the isms. It was his only extended contact with Jews, but it left a permanent impression on him. As he later noted, For six years I toiled in their galleys and got nothing but money. And uh, I find that quote very <laughs> amusing because I don't know what else you're supposed to get when you're working for a job. You know, that's kind of the deal. But uh, yeah, so um, at, at this point, I want to move on to his experiences in Russia, which I feel are really important for the angle that we're going to take on this. Uh, but is there anything that we want to say before we move on here? I mean, he, when he leaves, is he's he's not leaving as like a, a failed screenwriter or as a as someone who's like despised by Hollywood, right? Like he's he's just kind of done there. 
Yeah, I think so. I, I think there's a combination of, and uh, what Khalid is talking about in terms of what he saw about his childhood, I think that this sort of backs up my ideas here, is that he felt, he has this like kind of persecution complex slash delusions of grandeur kind of thing where he thinks he's like this genius that is unappreciated and so the fact that he isn't immediately propelled to stardom and in sort of like elevated to this you know this great status i think he sees that as a personal slight he takes it personally and is is not finding any way uh, upward mobility through hollywood and he kind of blames jews for that because he sees a lot of jews at the top of the food chain there but yeah, he certainly was not like a failure, you know, he was doing all right for himself. Um, I think he was continuing to write in other capacities as well. And this sort of leads him to Russia. So um, he was uh, in Japan uh, seeking material for articles. And now I don't know the exact circumstances around this. I don't know if this was um, something, you know, remarkable in any particular way. But, uh, you know, this is during World War One. Um, but he, uh, while in Japan, he was approached by George S. Phelps, who was the YMCA secretary for the Far East, and offered the chance to see the war firsthand in Siberia under the auspices of the YMCA. Uh, Phelps offered to underwrite his journey and arrange transportation in exchange for reports on YMCA activities in the region and uh, additionally scouting possible locations for canteens to be established for American servicemen. So uh, there's some speculation here that this isn't simply YMCA and Pelly coming to agreement. There may be some involvement with U.S. military or U.S. intelligence. There's no hard evidence of this, but it just sort of seems to kind of fit the bill. Um, he sailed to Russia from the Japanese port city of Suruga. Uh, there he was exposed to the worldwide Jewish question from American and Czech troops that were stationed there. He learned that the World War was caused by Jews who had assassinated Franz Ferdinand in order to create a very profitable war. Uh, their plans included overthrowing the Russian Tsar and establishing a Jewish homeland in Russia, which would then be the home base from which to launch a plan for world domination. The Russian Revolution, which, uh, as he learned, was led by a Jew in Lenin and funded by a Jewish banker, Jacob Schiff, was part of this effort, supposedly. So, yeah, it's, it's not that he got into anti-Semitism and learned all of this while in Russia. He clearly had some of these feelings prior to that that were developed in Hollywood. But it seems like there was a lot of this floating around in the air over there in Russia among the like Western expat communities. And um, he kind of got clued into a lot of this. And this only intensifies. Um, Sorry, just to clarify. So... What had happened was he, just on the timeline to clarify mm -hmm. this, he was in Hollywood briefly, went to Russia during the war for a bit, and then came back and then did more films and met Lon Chaney and things like that. Um, Cause yeah, the, it would have had to be, saying, right? Yeah, because the films were 1920 and 22 and <clears throat> things like that. So yes. Yeah, you're right. You're right, actually. I have this timeline a little bit goofed up. Yeah, he was, he was in Russia in 1918. 
Yeah, and I think his departure from Hollywood, like, kind of coincided with him sort of transferring his energies into, like, the more sort of spiritual market, almost, of ideas. Like, uh, when he had the kind of experience of sort of conversing with Jesus personally, you know, uh, sort of ascending to, like, a higher plane, like a near-death kind of -of out-of-body experience, uh, as he told it in his book, Seven Minutes to Eternity. I think that was kind of... uh, the beginning like you know or the like the maybe the conclusion or the end of his real big formal break with his sort of past self uh in hollywood yeah i think so that that ends up occurring in 1928 so we we are still you know talking about early 1920s at this point and yeah. even before that because it does seem like he was in russia even before 1920 so yeah I, th- I think you're right donald just to clarify it does seem that he was bouncing around japan and russia while also doing the writing for hollywood so i'm not sure exactly how all that worked out but uh yeah these do these things do seem to coincide yeah i remember him telling about his uh service like in asia in his uh the book of revelation which also kind of deals with his spiritual experiences and, you know, he, I, this is kind of framed around his disillusionment with, like, the Christianity that he grew up with, you know, and he was saying things like, uh, you know, seeing the teeming masses of Asia, you know, didn't uh, do much to persuade him of, you know, God being good. And he kind of, you know, in line with what you were saying about the anti-Semitism, at least in his retelling of it, he kind of frames it as, like, becoming against kind of the God of Scripture, but still having this sympathy for Jesus, uh, you know, who he eventually claimed to kind of have personal contact with. Um, but yes, as you said, it's down the line. Yeah, and, and one thing, I'm wary of relying too much on his sort of like retrospective writing about his early course, years because yeah. Yeah. he's just not a reliable person in the first place. And then there's obviously a lot of, you know, yeah. just motivation to write things the way that he wants to write them. So, um yeah, so anyway, back to uh, Russia and the YMCA. He uh, debarks from Vladivostok, where YMCA's Red Triangle headquarters is located. He uh, travels throughout Siberia in a canteen car attached to Allied troop trains, taking pictures of the conditions in the region and writing reports on the most efficient means of turning the Russian youth away from, quote, satanic Leninism. Uh, Pelly claims that he was a combination Red Triangle secretary, war correspondent, espionage agent, secret photographer, canteen proprietor, and consular courier, striving to plant sanity, decency, and political stability in a land being slowly mutilated and mangled by communism. Yeah, it sounds like a spy to me. <laughs> it could be. Like, that's that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, it, it very well could be. Um, the YMCA ha- has had some uh, experiences with kind of cooperating along those lines, as have many uh, overseas American sort of things like that. So the uh, shifting positions of the front line often left him close to combat. He witnessed fighting in the city of Blagoveshchenk. Uh, I hope I got that right, where his car attached to a Japanese troop train was sent in as a reinforcement to the fight. He witnessed the entire city go up in flames and was deeply moved by this terrible and unforgettable sight. He said it was as magnificent as it was tragic. Um, In uh, 1918, he was staying in Irkutsk and uh, watching the ceremonies that gave Admiral Alexander Kolchik a formal control of all the white Russian forces. 
and persuaded at the American consulate to accompany two representatives of the International Harvester Company, uh, along with $750,000 and Washington-bound diplomatic documents, to essentially take them from the representatives of the company to Harbin, Manchuria, in an effort to get the, get them out of the country before they could fall into Bolshevik hands. And uh, along the way, uh, the trip was very treacherous, but they managed to get to Harbin, Manchuria, and the war happened to end while they were en route. So, Tom, how much money was that, did you say? That was $750,000, so three quarters I mean, that, that's of a million dollars. Amount. That's a lot of money in 1918. That sounds yeah. like it's essentially the entire you know budget of this company. Um, I, I imagine that this was an American company that was operating out of Russia and they saw what was going down with the revolution and wanted to get out of Dodge before things went south. So again, you know, possible and, you know, uh, cooperation with intelligence or some kind of agent or asset for intelligence or something like that. Who knows? I'm wondering if if maybe the attribution of his anti-Semitism to American and Czech troops is like maybe too glib. If he if he was actually seeing kind of behind the scenes some of, um, you know the the money movement, the the dark money plays that were happening behind the scenes. I mean, maybe he would. I I don't know what you guys think of the the Anthony Sutton kind of thesis that like Wall Street was at least partially responsible for funding. Um, the the Bolshevik Revolution, but may, maybe he was aware of some of that stuff. Well, I mean, that was certainly uh, a theory or an idea that he was exposed to while in Russia. Yeah. So I wouldn't attribute the, you know, I don't think like these troops and the, this kind of discourse that was going on over there sort of like changed his mind about jews like he was just suddenly persuaded yeah i think it just sort of fleshed out some of these ideas and maybe reinforced them or kind of gave him some exposure to the more prevalent theories and kind of like this world of anti-semitic ideas that he previously just sort of felt you know he he just didn't like the the jewish like hollywood elite or whatever yeah and it wasn't like that weird to be super anti-semitic at that time Like, you know, like you didn't have to be like in a super niche like group or community in order to be like a raging anti-Semite. Like, you know, as you said, like he had no real contact with Jews like prior to that. Like, you know, a lot of people like in areas of country where a lot of Jews don't live are still like really anti-Semitic like today. Like, you know, just it's yeah, it's back then it was super normal. Right. And son of a minister uh, sounds like a very kind of harsh guy his father so maybe there was some of that kind of going around you know the kind of traditional anti-semitism so to speak so here's another quote from um scott beekman's book it says while he possessed nothing but scorn for either the red bolsheviks or the white cossacks uh which he referred to as predatory hitmen pelly's accounts demonstrated genuine sympathy for the russian peasants He decried the treatment of these people caught in the middle of a war that they neither understood nor wished to participate in. Much as he did the rural folk of the American Southwest, Pelly found the Russian peasants to be hardworking, friendly, and quietly noble. To Pelly, they were the prototypes of the generous New Englanders he grew up with, and their wholesale dislocation was a pitiable consequence of the revolution. 
Pelly blamed only the Jewish communist for the tragic destruction of the peasantry. He argued that the boxcar loads of refugees he traveled with were victims of a revolution perpetrated by 276 Jews from New York's east side. Pelly later claimed that witnessing the actions of the scavenger Jews in Siberia led him to understand the Jewish plot to take over the world, the Russian Revolution being merely the first step in the program. He used his experience in Siberia as first-hand evidence of the fate awaiting Americans as the communists took over the country. Pelly believed that Russian atrocities could happen in Kansas, Indiana, New Jersey, quote, if this communist peril bec becomes guerrilla warfare. Yeah, so, you know, definitely the anti-communism aspect of, of anti-Semitism seems to come out of this experience in Russia. Um, and I, I want to pause a little bit here and look at Harbin Manchuria, where he took that money from the um, International Harvester Company. Uh, Harbin Manchuria is a really interesting case. And... Uh, I'm sure everyone's heard of The Manchurian Candidate, the book, and then later the movie. That book has been written about as if... How do I put this? Um, it's not the strongest case I've ever read for something, but it is an interesting idea that it's not just a fiction, that it is actually a kind of a, a veiled expose of actual mind control and brainwashing operations. I'm not sure to what extent those are supposed to be exactly as depicted in that book. I have neither read the book nor the the theories about it very deeply. Uh, I'm referring to, in particular, the book the uh, JFK, The Final Solution by John Bivlacqua. I find his writing really difficult to get through, so I kind of haven't struggled with that. It's quite but, a title. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. So the, the basic thesis of that book is that um, the Manchurian Candidate is... There's a lot of anagrams and things like that. So the various characters in that book are actually like referring to real people. The, the, the whole idea of this person who is like programmed and brainwashed to do the bidding of this group, uh, that that is actually a, a thing that is done. You know, we've talked about MK Ultra and uh, and things like that. It, it's sort of a similar premise. And um, the reference to the Manchurian candidate is referring to, you know, Manchuria in China, where this city, Harbin, is located. Uh, Harbin happens to be one of the chief centers of Russian fascism after the revolution. And there's a guy here called Von Siatsky, who is sort of like the, the chief of uh, Russian fascism, I guess you could say. So here's here's a quote from the FBI official website that kind of discusses Pelly's interactions or connections to Vonsiaski, which I, I just think it's interesting to kind of connect the dots here. So it says, during the FBI's investigation of Vonsiaski's activities, evidence was obtained that he had some dealings with William Dudley Pelly's organization. In fact, upon one occasion, Vonsiaski sent several copies of his publication, The Fascist, to Pelly's organization in Asheville, North Carolina. On one occasion, at least, Vonsiaski ordered 100 copies of Pelly's publication. During 1936, a representative of the Pelly publishers wrote Vonsiaski stating, Your work for the cause, we are mutually serving, publishing your Russian fascist, has just come to our attention. From reports given us, it seems you are fighting a rather lone battle, and a little camaraderie is not amiss. 
The letter further stated that Pelly's organization had been in battle militantly over four years and was determined to block Judah in government and the Jewish bankers by the coming national election. Um, so this is referring to a later period that we will get into when Pelly has actually established a fascist organization called the Silver Legion. But it is just interesting that he was kind of in town uh, at the same time with this guy much earlier than that and participating in these, you know, this kind of stuff with the YMCA and this company and possibly, you know, who, who knows exactly what he was up to exactly, you know. So just sort of an interesting note. There are a tremendous number of spooks in that area in, in general at that time, at least in part because the Japanese military was like actively inventing modern warfare at that time. Uh, so there are a huge number of international, you know, quote unquote, observers um, watching developments there. Um, yeah, so I, we'll, we'll cap off this period of his time in Russia here and move on to the Claire Audient episode, unless uh, anybody has anything else they want to add? Oh, I just wanted to add that I was just thinking about this whole Manchurian candidate thing in the mm -hmm. movie. And um, yeah, and just for if, if people haven't seen it as quickly, like the, the movie itself, a number of American soldiers get kidnapped, I think, during the Korean War in like in the movie version, I guess. And then uh, they're they they're back and they're like, a, you know, a celebrated hero and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, because they were captured and um, they kind of walk through this process where a person starts to come to realization that you know the stories are a little too tight the the stories of their sort of kidnapping and all that don't really as things start not adding up turns out that you know they were you know in the movie it turns out that they were brainwashed to be killers by sort of like the communist agents and all that kind of stuff and um that kind of culminates in political violence basically like you know like a uh, an attempt in a very it's almost like it's it is kind of spooky how very directly like mk ultra kind of thing it is like and uh i was just also thinking that like they made a remake of it with uh denzel washington and meryl streep as like a hillary clinton figure and um i thought it'd be funny to watch that again and look for any anagrams or anything that and, like, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. like be like Oh, maybe they made this one about the Clinton body count or something. Yeah. So, yeah. Pizza yeah. is the activation code. <laughs> yeah. This whole thing of mind control, there's a lot of uh, like tangential connections to Pelly uh, around that sort of stuff. And I just find it interesting that he, if he was in the place in the world where that would make sense for him to be, if he had any actual connection to that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. So. All right. So. Moving on from Russia, uh, we'll, we'll get back to that whole Manchurian thing later, I think, um, and the whole mind control angle. But uh, so this is where he has his, his what he calls a clairaudient episode. This happens in May 1928. So we, we've gone through the, the late 1910s and the 1920s he's doing this journalism this work with the ymca he's written for hollywood he's developed these anti-semitic ideas and he kind of fancies himself like a unappreciated genius and then one night he falls asleep reading ethnological tracks of course i'm sure he did that quite a bit um and he wakes up early in the morning to an inner voice shrieking i'm dying 
Uh, he then feels a physical sensation like a combination of a heart attack and apoplexy, which subsides as he's plunged down into a mystic depth of cool blue space, not unlike the bottomless sinking sensation that attends the taking of ether for anesthetics. Uh, so this is all probably taken from the writing that you read, Khalid, um, The Seven Minutes in Eternity, and we'll, we'll talk about that article in a little bit here. But uh, let me quote once again from Scott Beatman's book. Uh, it says, Whirling madly into the blue mist, Pelle closed his eyes and hoped for the quick end of the experience. Feeling hands holding him up, he opened his eyes and found himself lying naked on a marble slab in an environment reminiscent of a Maxfield Parish painting, with two men in white uniforms attending to him. The two vaguely familiar helpers told Pelle not to be afraid and not to try to see everything in the first seven minutes. They instructed him to bathe in a nearby reflecting pool, which caused Pelly to lose his self-consciousness over being naked. One man left, and the remaining white-clad individual, William, explained to Welly that he had gone over while stationed at a military camp in 1917. William told Pelly that everyone has lived hundreds of times before, because Earth is a classroom where souls learn and move up the spiritual hierarchy. This hierarchy accounts for human races, which are simply great classifications of humanity epitomizing gradations of spiritual development, starting with the black man and proceeding upward in, in the cycles to the white. Having completed his first spiritual lesson, the blue mist reappeared to return Pelly to the bungalow. After the first lesson, William instructed Pelly to relax and return to the higher reality. This time, the marble portico was full of people, and Pelly realized that he knew all of them and that they were all saintly individuals, with no misfits, no tense countenances, no sour leers, no preoccupied brusqueness, nor physical disfigurements. After a brief chat with these folks, Pelly, again enveloped by the blue mist, returned to his bedroom, but now possessing strange powers of perception to assist him in completing a specific errand on the material plane. Shaken by the experience, Pelly determined to regain his sense of the material world by visiting his office the next morning. He related that his employees found him to appear like a different person, who stood straighter and healthier and less wrinkled. The experience also eliminated his troubling insomnia and anxiety. Ketamine is amazing. <laughs> There's a lot of um, interesting parallels with Sufi stuff around like um fana you know the annihilation of the self and god the whole idea of like ascending to the higher reality and then returning to the material world with kind of a renewed sense of your your mission in life um you yeah know. well there's a lot of parallels with uh many sort of traditions and ideas of spiritual experiences and what he describes you know going up to the way people describe spiritual experiences today uh i was just listening to a YouTube video of talking about, you know, Mike mentioned ketamine, you know, people, someone talking about like a no drug drug trip that they had where they sort of traveled in a similar way to like other planets and things like that. It's just like some person that I happened upon online, you know, uh, talking about about this. Um, and, you know, they're often described in similar terms. I mean, it's also we won't go into this necessarily now, but, uh, you know, later on, he gets into kind of his UFO sort of experience that's similar to that type of thing, like any kind of other near-death experience people have described yeah like a if it's into like you know a very uniform kind of continuum with a lot of these a lot of these descriptions um, yeah yeah it's actually like kind of a lot of his like writing about the stuff is like so 
generic as to be like kind of boring. He has kind of interesting voice, but you know, as you said, some of it can be kind of hard to to get through because like it's very you know in a way generic. Yeah, uh, we'll get into that later because it's kind of interesting to look at his influences and how much of his ideas and stuff are kind of cribbed directly from others. Um, one thing I find really funny about this is that he falls asleep reading these kind of this material about, I'm assuming, kind of like racial hierarchy or something like that. And then that's kind of like what his his uh, this w- William character tells him about. So yeah, one uh, of the one of the guys is named William. Yeah. Do, do, do they identify themselves as being extraterrestrials at this point? Um, I I I don't think so. Um, no, not okay. in those terms because this is still pretty early for like okay. any kind of like saucer men type stuff in the traditional sense, like you know, or in the yeah. you know the sense we're familiar with. It is almost identical to the like the classic abduction narrative, though, right? Like, so so many of them are are almost identical to that. Like waking up on the examination table, you have the people or the creatures there who are going to calm you down, and then they take you to some wondrous area where you see, you know, like the full unfolding of human destiny or whatever. That that stuff is all still there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't think UFOs come into the picture until after it becomes a popular phenomena, like after Roswell yeah. in 1947. Yeah. But yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the uh, aspects of that like exist in sort of previous traditions of like encountering sort of spirit guides or like, you know, the abduction phenomena Sure. Uh, is arguably like pretty old. Um, so... Uh, you know, people have described these things in many terms, but they don't use the kind of vocabulary of saucer men or, you know, that type of thing or uh, extraterrestrials, as, as Mike said, uh, until a little bit later. Was it yeah. your guys' feeling that this was this is just like purely kind of like a cynical fabrication or like, you know, did did something happen to this guy, Jenner, playing tricks on him or whatever? It's not clear. Like, there's no real way to determine. Uh, yeah. But like... My instinct is that something kind of happened. Yeah, like something. I think that something actually did happen to him. That's my impression. But, you know, did he, like, uh, you know, actually reach, like, a higher spiritual consciousness? Like, uh, I would say, you know, probably not. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I think that he did experience something. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't by his interpretation of it, I don't think it's even like a significant thing. I think he may have even just fell asleep and dreamed something uh, because this actually happens again. He's reading something, falls asleep, and then dreams <laughs> about the thing he was reading about. Um, but this sort of, these ideas and all this kind of stuff, this causes him problems later on with his fellow like fascist compatriots and stuff. So I, I don't see a lot of reason for him to be very cynical about this like if he's just crafting this narrative uh it, maybe he thinks it kind of sets him apart and that's like his angle or something that's a possibility but it seems to cost him more than it benefits him so it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to see this as like just a like a very like just a completely manufactured thing you know and after this point he he never abandons his commitment to this narrative or this idea no like no in fact it really only intensifies not so much at this period but later on it becomes like his whole thing and it does seem to be kind of like the organizing center for his motivation to like get out and and be politically active or whatever 
Yeah, there, there's, uh, they're very intimately tied. The, the political activism is almost like secondary to this sort of stuff, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, it can kind of go both ways in terms of, like, you know, the idea of, like, not necessarily a fabrication, but, like, the personality, like, the state beforehand, like, where you are, like, emotionally, mentally, like, that definitely has an effect on, you know, uh, inducing or facilitating these type of experiences, you know, right. uh, it's not something that, like, you know, randomly happened to him that could have happened to anybody, like, you know, it's it's part and parcel of what it, you know, that he had what his, his desires might have, like, the way that he manifested it, I would say, is sort of something that kind of prefigured it as, as well. I, I, I think I may be going a different direction with this, is that this okay. actually all sounds very convincing. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I do think now that, you know, the different races are a hierarchy of spirits and uh, with myself as the perfect expression of all of it, its culmination, so... All right. Well, <laughs> there's some things that come up later on that maybe uh, maybe you'll be interested in hearing. We'll we'll dig into his theology pretty deeply, sure. I think, and uh, he has some interesting ideas about the papists and stuff. So I'm okay. not sure how you're going to feel about that one, but you know, I'll follow the truth wherever it goes. That's my opinion. So yeah. <laughs> that's the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um. Right. So he has this experience. It's 1928. Uh, he decides that the flesh pots of Hollywood cannot help him understand his experience. So he travels to New York to meet his friends there. So again, like if we're talking about like, d did this legitimately happen to him in, in some sense? Um, he abandons his Hollywood career because of this experience, you know, so that something has happened, right? Like he, he's definitely uh, committing to it. And then en route to New York, while in New Mexico, he has a second experience. He's reading Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, The Oversoul, and a disembodied presence explains to him that Jesus Christ was an actual personage, and that existing churches and ministers were not only wrong about Christ's teachings, but were leading millions of people astray. The presence instructed Pelly to continue to receive clairaudient messages by utilizing the hidden powers within him and to spread the correct understandings of Christ. So uh, he goes to New York. He meets his friend Mary Dariu, who is a fiction editor for American Magazine. Uh, she is deeply immersed in spiritualism herself, and she's excited to join Pelly in exploring his new powers. During the summer of 1928, they spent two weeks engaging in automatic writing. So again, I'll quote from uh, Beekman's book here. The beings from the other side instructed them that the music of the spheres is the very center of the mystery of universal creation. Within this universe, there is no force but love. Hatred and evil are merely the absence of love. These beings also explained to Pelly and Dariu that they dwelled on the harmonious plane, which is the next level above the earth, and communicated with certain earth-dwelling souls to promote love and harmony. A large portion of these messages focus specifically on the role of Pelly in spiritual history. The voices allegedly explained to Pelly that he would apprentice in tribulation, then achieve financial independence, so he might be ready for freedom and service to higher beings. He had been chosen because art is the handmaiden of God, and artists like himself are the true chosen priesthood. So he writes an article about the seven minutes in eternity, the, that first experience that he has. He rents a room in the Commodore Hotel, and over the course of two hours, he writes the article through a process called Super Radio, which I'm not sure exactly what that means, uh, but it seems like some kind of automatic writing uh, as 
as he was doing with Dare You. So just for those who are unfamiliar, automatic writing is sort of like, uh, it's, it's like you, you don't consciously think about what you're writing. You just type, you just keep going, um, sort of like a Jack Kerouac style thing, I guess. And, yeah. uh, the idea is board. to channel, the idea is to channel like another presence of some kind so that actually something else is writing is the idea like if you just kind of like relax and start typing random things like you'll be guided by some kind of other intelligence Mm. so this is a a method that he uses throughout his life uh going forward here uh so the article is published in the march 1929 issue of american magazine which had a subscription list at the time of over two million people and it was a huge hit. It generates huge amounts of mail to both the editor and the writer, and it becomes one of the most widely read accounts of paranormal activity in American history at that point. Um, and I, I don't think I can overemphasize the kind of impact that this article had in terms of just getting people excited and really hitting like a, a mass audience. He ends up spending the next year responding to correspondence about his article. He moves to New York, and he starts organizing meetings and seances with the community that is uh, interested in these kinds of things. He ends up meeting the psychic to the stars, a trance medium named George Wiener, or Wenner, uh, and this sort of opens doors for him where he can start to meet celebrities that are also you know, have similar interests in this kind of stuff, including Joseph Conrad, June Mathis, who is a film scenarist, uh, various prominent American Indians, and Robert Louis Stevenson. To uh, quote the uh, the Beekman book again, Pelly eventually began contacting many of these same people, the uh, celebrities that I mentioned, during his own sessions. He claimed that Robert Louis Stevenson provided him with an unused chapter and asserted that Joseph Conrad clairaudiently dictated an entire novel to him. Pelly published his work of fiction in the summer of 1929 as Golden Rubbish, allegedly to answer many of the questions readers raised in response to his American Magazine article. Um, so to turn to, uh, dare you a little bit, she's sort of an interesting figure. Uh, she was the chair of the publications committee of the American society for psychical research, the ASPR. And that, as I said, opened the door for him into many of these like New York spiritualist circles. Uh, this organization, the ASPR was established in 1884 by physicist William Barrett and psychologist William James. Uh, They had some troubles in the early years, but they kind of picked up steam in the 1920s thanks to best-selling books and successful speaking tours by Sir Oliver Lodge and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, as well as playwright Maurice Maeterlinck, and that kind of pushed psychical research into the headlines. In fact, even Thomas Edison becomes involved and spends part of his final years working on a spiritual communication machine. This connection with Darieu and the rest of these celebrities gives Pelly exposure to a lot of the current theories and writings on psychical research that helped him develop his own ideas. His account of visiting another plane made an immediate splash in the psychical community, and it placed him squarely within the debate over the most divisive spiritualist issue of the period, reincarnation. Uh, So during this time, uh, psychical research was actually beginning to be taken seriously, uh, even to the extent that Duke University established a psychical laboratory in 1928 that investigated mediums and psychics, initially uh, on the question of life after death, but then 
running into the obvious obstacles dealing with that, they began to restrict themselves solely to corporal parapsychical material, which means mental or subjective phenomena, including spiritualism. So after this year, uh, he returns to California and he continues automatic writing and he becomes increasingly convinced of his own spiritual importance. He uh, relates that one of his California spirit contacts notes that in numerous previous incarnations he had been one of those people who kicked up more of a rumpus on the human stage than humanity especially liked at the time and was always in some proselytizing capacity that wrought alterations in the mode of humanity's living. Uh, thanks to the success of his article in the American magazine, he started his own magazine focused on metaphysics uh, called The New Liberator. So this is 1930 that he starts this magazine, and he purports to promote Christ's teachings, as defined by him, and the vast machinery operating within infinitesimal precision and accounting for every event on our present plane of consciousness. He runs into financial troubles with the magazine, and he looks for funding from other metaphysical organizations, including the ancient mystical order of the Rosicrucians, uh, Amork. So Amork is, you know, we can get into Rosicrucians maybe in a later episode or something. I don't want to spend too much time on them, but they are probably most well known for their activities in the 60s. Uh, specifically in 1966 when they subjected one of their members to an experiment in sensory perception uh, while he sat blindfolded and attempted to identify objects by touch. This man later was arrested for the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. His name was Sirhan Basara Sirhan. So this is sort of what I was referring to when I was talking about the whole Manchurian candidate thing. It's interesting that he ends up being funded uh, by this group that was the one behind possibly programming Sirhan Sirhan to assassinate Robert F. Kennedy. Yeah, uh, Rosicrucian or like Rosie Cross uh, beliefs are, you know, that's very much associated with the kind of Grail Quest theme. And mm. if you read his account of his spiritual experiences, like the themes from earlier in his writings, like just come up again and again. Yeah, to when you mentioned the Oversoul essay, uh, Emerson, I remembered him talking about it and saying, you know, there wasn't any particular line that he even remembers reading, but he just had a sense of vertigo and uh, he felt like a beam of white light like shine down upon his head, you know, much like the effect in the film, uh, his, uh, his film, The Light in the Dark. Um, this beam kind of shines down on his head and he, you know, just feels this piece sort of overwhelming him and uh yeah uh this is all in his seven minutes uh, in eternity um that he talks about this and there's also this sort of thing of you know beings or presences appearing in his room spiritual presences that you talk about uh you would talk about later and this is all like at this time like a pretty well-established thing you know the sort of claiming to have the answers about about life after death and that stuff you know as you said yeah. a lot of the crypt yeah, and, and, you know, you were saying that his writing is kind of generic and stuff. And yes. he, uh, you know, before we get into the Silver Shirts, the uh, the Silver Legion, I just wanted to kind of cap this period off here uh, by saying that he refused to admit that his teachings came from any other source than these clairaudient messages, although he did admit familiarity with theosophical writings. And uh, his his ideas had a lot in common with them. You know, we, we talked about uh, theosophy a little bit in that previous episode we did on the occult and 
there's certainly a lot in common here. You have uh, syncretic ideas that blend Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, spiritualism, Egyptian hermeticism, Kabbalism, and occultism, and they kind of have this idea around evolution in a certain sense, karma, reincarnation, and after-death states. It's, so, yeah, it's extremely ripped off from theosophy, I would say. Right. Like, his, like, larger overarching cosmology is, like, very much, like, uh, ripped off. The main difference is that it's more Christ-focused than theosophy, um, or, like, kind of uh, the many, the w- wide range of ascended master beliefs, you know, the idea that there's these sort of spirit beings who are kind of, like, they're ascended masters, you know, Jesus is usually included among them. Uh, but there's, you know, a whole range of different figures who have ascended. Uh, they might have any number of names. Some of them might be historical. Some of them might be made up. Uh, but uh, Pelly's big difference is that he was really focused on Jesus. Uh, you know, there's many uh, different groups that have these kind of ascended master ideas. And Pelly's ideas are very similar to theirs, but it's uh, more Jesus-oriented. Um, yeah, and Jesus perhaps exclusive. more emphasis on the whole racial hierarchy ideas. Yeah, kind of. Uh, well, I mean, like the, his political career, like uh, obviously he took those those notions like very very seriously and pursued them like with like much more ferocity. But the seeds of like a lot of that stuff actually is like in Blavatsky, like these basic ideas of uh, like kind of racialism or these like original human races and kind of generation and uh, the kind of uh, Aryanism. Um, yeah, like I mean, obviously much more intense with it, but not as much more intense than like maybe someone i'm familiar with like that type of material might think you know uh it's there right let's get into the silver shirts shall we um he founds the silver legion of america as its official name is uh on january 31st 1933 which is the day after hitler becomes chancellor of germany uh, he heads the organization as national commander alongside a treasurer and secretary, and he's assisted by a general staff consisting of a chief, chamberlain, quartermaster, sheriff, and the all-important censor. Uh, they're headquartered in Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, they claim to have 25,000 members and 75,000 sympathizers throughout the country, although historians believe that there was probably no more than 15,000 members in reality. Uh, they have this uniform that they wear that was designed by Pelly himself. It sort of looks like kind of like a Mountie sort of a thing, like kind of a, you know, if you think about 1920s, like a forest ranger kind of a thing, that sort of a outfit. Uh, and it's got this big scarlet L over the left breast, which uh, possibly signifies love, loyalty, or liberation, or perhaps legion. It's not really clear exactly what the L stands for, but there's obviously a lot of things that that could be. Um, So if we go back to Beekman's book here, he says that anticipating that the Legion would serve as the foundation of a new theocratic state, Pelly also created departments to handle specific issues, including public enlightenment, patriotic probity, crime erasement, public morals and mercy. The Department of Public Morals and Mercy was seen by Pelly as especially important as it would be in charge of placing all vagabonds in concentration centers, censoring the press, and arresting persons responsible for motion pictures that depicted violence. So I'm curious, was there any violence in the movie that you saw of his? Um, no, it was very, uh, tame. Well, you know, there was a little bit of violence. Uh, they, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. punched the boyfriend in the face at one point. And there's a hunting scene 
um, where the the Holy Grail is discovered, kind of hidden away in this woodland, like while uh, the British guy's hunting. So there's like gunfire uh, there, but um, yeah, the main thing was that Lachini Jr. kind of like uh, knocked out, you know, with one good punch the the guy at one point. Uh, although they eventually uh, did forgive each other. So overall, like it was a pretty uh, tame and, and happy story. Uh, there wasn't like any sort of bloodshed or anything, and it was very, you know morally upright overall um i guess there was some theft but it was for a good cause yeah and then if you think about the anti-alcohol western that he uh helped write that's that's kind of interesting too to think about yeah Um, i was really one thing that i find fascinating about the silver uh silver shirts is the actual costuming like the silver color of the shirts like it's an interesting choice uh, in terms of aesthetics. We're talking about his connections to like these uh, larger ideas of you know in the kind of esoteric or spiritual realm. The choice of silver I, I find to be so interesting, especially like you know in the the way that the Grail is depicted in the film that uh, we were just talking about, uh, sort of a shiny quality, its ability to glow in the dark, that type of thing, and you know his later interest in in UFO knots, who are often depicted to be kind of wearing these kind of shiny. Uh, outfits uh you know uh, or have a sort of silver aura to them uh like the spiritual significance of silver uh is really fascinating i wonder i don't know if maybe you read in the book at all what the calculus behind the choice of color is um but Um, i think you're on the right track i i didn't take any notes specifically about that and i don't remember reading anything along those lines but I, i i i saw at some point someone discussing this idea and that there is some connection to either his earlier or later esoteric ideas so you're definitely on the right track like the the silver thing doesn't seem like kind of standard fascist stuff you know usually it's like black or red or some brown or something like that so silver uh does does sort of stand out in that regard so membership to the legion is open to all except jews and blacks and there's a ten dollar annual due alongside the cost of the uniform which is six dollars uh prospective members submitted a photograph and personal information including racial heritage military experience financial records and the exact hour and minute of birth and signed a document agreeing to abide by the organization's principles these christian american patriots pledged to respect and sustain the sanctity of the christian ideal to nurture the moral tradition and civic domestic and spiritual life and the culture of the wholesome natural and inspirational in art, literature, music, and drama, to adulate and revere an aristocracy of intellect, talent, and characterful purpose in the body politic, and to sponsor and acclaim aggressive ideals and pride of craftsmanship rather than the golden serpent of profit that the lowliest individual may aspire to a life of fullest flower. Uh, Also to exalt patriotism and pride of race, and in the interest of progress and evolution, to recognize the integrity of every nation and seek to preserve his place in the fellowship of peoples. So, pretty standard fascism, to, to be honest. Like, the you know, I don't know if anything really stands out there to me. Maybe the golden serpent of profit is sort of interesting uh, in light of the whole idea of, like, silver. Any kind of, like, precious metal like that obviously has, like, an occult or esoteric significance. Like, you know, a lot of this sure. tied in with, sort of, yeah, like, uh, the powers of, of metals, that type of thing. Or, you know, anyway. 
Do you guys know if if the Silver Shirts ever made common cause with the KKK or something like that? Because I, I always see them treated separately, although the Silver Shirts were based in North Carolina, so presumably they would have had some level of contact. You know, I did not run into any of that um, hmm. in my reading. Uh, they would often feud with other right-wing groups. Hmm. But uh, I, I actually didn't notice any kind of connection to the KKK directly, which is sort of interesting to think about because the KKK also kind of saw themselves as like a Christian. I guess they still do see themselves as a Christian group, had same ideas about race and all that kind of stuff. Um, so as a member of the Silver Legion, you are required to attend nine weekly indoctrination meetings where you receive instruction on the threat of Jewish communism and your responsibilities as Christian patriots. Uh, the bulk of the meeting was discussion of the four primers, two works by Pelly, The President Knows and No More Hunger, and two anti-Semitic standards, The Hidden Empire and The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. Uh, so Pelly's work outlined this idea of Christ democracy or Christian commonwealth. And so I, I read a bit of No More Hunger, which is almost explicitly like a political manifesto. It begins by talking about, you know, kind of just depicts life in this sort of utopian Christ democracy that he envisions and then explains exactly what the political program is. And I find it really interesting to look through this. I mean, it's pretty standard, like populist stuff for the most part, but I don't know. Let's, let's see what you guys think. So the first idea is to organize labor into a kind of militant army to remove the capitalists from society and then to organize the nation into a single corporation. All U.S. citizens will be made common stockholders and receive monthly dividends of common stock regardless of sex or marital status to provide for basic needs. So very similar to like a UBI kind of a payment. Um, additional dividends from preferred stock are there to reward citizens for initiative, ambition, industry, and thrift. So basically you, you get your standard monthly payment and then if you are engaged in some kind of contribution to the national economy, you are able to earn more than that. Um, currency is abolished and money is valued at the true function of financial measurement. <laughs> whatever that means and all citizens have checking accounts based on the earned share of the GNP the right to property and homestead premises is inviolate and inalienable and it is to be made unlawful and unthinkable to foreclose upon these rights there are no taxes and he says that they would be as archaic as currency uh, there would be no more commercial interest levied or paid with in borrowings. So in other words, no interest or usury. There is no rent. Uh, citizens have opportunity to labor at the vocation of their choice. Compensations and rewards for labor being premised solely on efficiency and talent and promotions achieved according to diligence and worth. No major legislation can be passed without 51% popular vote. And likewise, impeachment or recall of political representatives can be achieved by a 51% popular vote. Uh, voting is to be made public in order to ensure transparency. He talks a bit about the way that uh, secret ballots is are kind of used to like rig the system and stuff like that. 
Um, educational opportunities are to be made available to all, as well as medical services, which would be assumed by a Christian society, recognizing its moral obligation to lift financial burdens from the unfortunate. And then the state is also made to support for cultural and artistic facets of life. So uh, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if, yeah. If you take that part alone, doesn't sound too bad. Um, yeah, I mean, it's good to remember, too, also that what was happening at the time, obviously, where, you know, you had mass unemployment, you had people, millions yeah. of people losing their farms and, right. uh, you know, houses and stuff. And these kind of ideas were floating around all over the place, you know, and, you know, and it's also kind of funny that if you translate it into contemporary terms, you can kind of take each thing and some, you know, or most of them and correspond them to things like, you know, Medicare for all or you know, people saying, you know, abolish rent or don't pay your rent and all that kind of stuff, you know, like, so, you know, it's interesting that I think that's one thing that people often forget about far right politics is that, you know, a lot of the things that they say get drawn from other radical traditions and stuff too, or populist, you know, sort of movements. And that can really end up kind of confusing people um, if they think that like, if they're say like a leftist activist, they can feel confused because they kind of assume that they're the ones on the good side on these issues. And if a person is, you know, ignorant in some way, basically, like they don't have a lot of political experience other than just maybe some limited exposure to the mainstream or something. And they're in an extreme situation and someone comes up to them and says, you know, join my movement. We want like free healthcare and all this kind of stuff. Right you don't necessarily have all the good reasons in your back pocket why you shouldn't trust that person just because they're far right or something, right? Like, it's like, uh, that's, I don't know, that's that's something that, uh, especially if, you know, you're looking at the mainstream and you're saying, uh, you know, well, they're not delivering, you know, they might say that they're going to fix everything, but they haven't actually fixed everything. They're just kind of maybe doing a little bit here and there or whatever. Yeah, I think especially, like, before World War II, like, this guy definitely wasn't alone in, like, being sympathetic to fascism or, like, the far, like, you know, the far, or to Hitler, like, himself, you know? So, yeah, I think that a lot of, like, the real strong commitment in the United States to hating Nazism and fascism, like, happened, like, over the course of World War II, like, in the aftermath, like, and I think that even now, like, as the people who remember that, like, are dying off, people are actually kind of forgetting, like, that we're supposed to hate fascism, and, like, an actual case has to be made against it, like, in the same way, or, you know, much stronger one where sure. it's not yeah. sort of reflexive. So, yeah, I think that definitely before World War II, like, it's an important point that, like, this sort of reflexive antagonism to fascism, like, isn't necessarily built into Americans. And, uh, yeah, parallel can be drawn with today, where we're having certain problems with people having sympathies for fascism because that sort of reflex isn't built in as strongly anymore due to the, the fading of the memories. And I think that, like, uh, we'll get into this more later on, but, um, you know, there is this reciprocal kind of thing where the Nazis are looking for, they're sort of probing American institutions to find potential allies. Uh, and they, you know, in different ways, they seem kind of skeptical about the idea that they can you know, these, these sort of organizations like the Legion and that, they're helpful in terms of uh, maybe they're more equivalent to maybe like the early Nazi street gangs or something like that in the way that, you know, they could be helpful in a situation where, say, the Republican Party gets into power and on 
is theoretically on like a um, right wing isolationist program and they need street muscle or something like that. It's not necessarily the case that they think that like this group itself is going to get into power. It's, it's more that they can find allies on the ground, like, you know, the German American Bund and all these things that where they can put their feelers out almost. And, you know, so I think that's important too, because it's not necessarily the case that these were the people that were going to be put in power, but it's more that like feeling around, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. And I guess according to Tom's notes, uh, you know, they weren't directly supported by the Nazis, but a lot of the time, yeah, there were feelers out, but they actually avoided direct financial support because like that would threaten the group then, you know, the government would maybe crack down more on them or, or be more attentive to them if they received direct financial support. So there was perhaps support in other ways uh, where they avoided actually like funding more overtly. Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, this is just sort of my idea, but I think that the Nazis uh, were more supportive of the German-American Bund because if they ever attained any level of power, I mean, I don't think they expected them to like take over the government entirely or something, but you know, let's say they have like a few representatives here and there or something like that. I, I think that a group like that would be much more amenable to being sort of like a toady to the Nazis, like if their identity and their whole thing is that they're german then like the great german reich is going to be the what you look to and you're just going to take your orders from them whereas this kind of goofy like spiritualist slash christians sort pseudo christian or whatever you know this kind of group it, it's not directly in line with the way that the nazis were viewing things so they could you know even if they took over and became the government of the u.s that's not necessarily going to be your ally you know that could just sure. be your rival yeah. Well, and also, yeah, you have to think of it in terms of the, the broad right in the United States, the anti-communist or uh, broad sort of uh, pro-Nazi in some th theoretical way, at least, um, right, is just trying to cobble together enough of, uh, you know, enough support from, say, business and uh, isolationists and all this stuff just to keep America out of the war. Like, that's theoretically... The, you know, the goal of them is to be just uh, just avoid Americans selling all these goods to, you know, like giving military support to other countries or whatever. So, you know, different groups can be helpful to them, even if they're not capable of it's not like, you know, they don't have to put up the Nazi flags. I guess there's that new uh, I guess it's an HBO series that came out or is it Showtime or something about fascists taking over America? Oh, um, are you talking about Man in the High Castle, the Philip K. No. thing? No, there's that one, but there's also another one where uh, it's actually, it's funny talking about this now because it, it, it's about this sort of um, Charles Lindbergh becomes president. Oh. oh, the plot against America. Yeah, the plot against Philip America. Roth. Yeah. Yeah, Philip Roth. So, yeah. Um, anyways, I just thought that was funny. I was just thinking about that while I was talking about that because it's like, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but it's just uh, the idea that, you know, there was this potential path for the far right to come into power. They obviously, I don't know the miniseries, but in that it kind of goes, you know, it's it's obviously exaggerated in the other direction. But, you know, I do think that there is this sort of, there was that ferment, at least on the far right around these kind of groups. Like this one's kind of a outlandish kind of example almost. But yeah, I think that's interesting how they have all these, you know, there are what ifs around all these different kind of groups around if things hadn't hit, gone different directions and stuff. So, yeah. I think even in the book, uh, It Can't Happen Here, uh, William Dudley Pelly might be mentioned as like, you know, whatever the fascist dude who takes over in that book is. I hope I'm thinking of the right book. But yeah, I, I think... Uh, I, I think so. I, I, I think I saw that in my research. Yeah. 
He's also uh, there's a a mod for the Europa Universalis game or is it Heroes of Iron Four? It's one of the two. But uh, there's a mod called Kaiserreich, which is sort of like an alternate history scenario, and all the different countries have different governments and stuff. And I think the two options you have for the U.S. it's sort of like a, a civil war, but the, completely different governments. One of them is ran by Pelly, and the other is uh, ran by Huey Long, I think. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, the the final thing on the political program that I thought worthy of mentioning here for the, uh, the Christ democracy thing is that they would have one city in each state set aside as a Beth Haven where Jews can reside. So that's nice of them to kind of consider things like that. Yeah. Oh, but it's funny because you mentioned Huey Long. That made me think, too, that he had, I mean, his program was like a UBI program, right? Like his his whole idea was every man a king that you would have this maybe guaranteed payment to all families or something like that that would uh, keep them out of poverty or something like that. So that's kind of, I don't know, it's just funny how all these ideas circulate all around. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it made me think that like populism is sort of always the same and it's it's not that like that's a bad thing or anything like that you know that would be great if we had a program like that but it doesn't necessarily that's not like a sell that shouldn't be a selling point for your investment or your commitment to any political movement right that they're kind of calling for that kind of stuff it's it's sort of like a there's just like a basic kind of menu of things that you're just supposed to offer people when you're trying to get their support i guess sure um so you know, the Silver Legion uh, experiences a lot of internal discord. Like I said, they don't get really big, uh, about 15,000 members uh, nationwide. And some of the leaders subordinate to Pelly don't really care much for his weird, like, esoteric ideas. And they're much more interested in just the kind of militant far-right stuff. And they start arming and training their followers for attacks on Jewish public officials. And also, uh, they start organizing an armed march on San Diego during a May Day celebration. It's kind of, like, doomed from the start. It's never really going to go anywhere. The uh, They're infiltrated by naval intelligence and in 1934, it's reported to the Special House uh, Congressional Subcommittee on Un-American Activities that these guys are, you know, planning the overthrow of the U.S. government, that they are possibly seditious and have connections to foreign enemies and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, 1934 is sort of a, a year when Nazi sympathizers start to be imprisoned and really monitored by the U.S. government. Kind of calling back to his time in Manchuria, uh, the Silver Shirts New York representative actually approaches Von Siatsky, that uh, guy that he was in contact with there, uh, with an offer to form an alliance, but it's turned down. Von Siatsky kind of wants to see the Silver Shirts grow in power a little bit before he starts to make any deals like that. And like you said, Khaled, he does, uh, the uh, Silver Shirts don't have any sustained contact with Nazi Germany, and they don't have any direct financial support, uh, despite the fact that they are very vocally uh, championing Hitler throughout their existence. Um, this does kind of change in 1938, uh, when Pelly is invited to the Third Reich's Erfurt Anti-Comintern Congress, and... Uh, Again, his ideas about Christianity and spiritualism and all that sort of 
you know, the Nazis aren't really into that. They kind of think he's a little strange or off his rocker or something. But they do exchange propaganda material. So Pelly gives them a lot of his writings, although they are really only interested in the anti-Semitic works and not all the spiritualist stuff. Again, in 1934, Nazi sympathizers were active, especially in the Republican Party in the U.S., uh, on February 22nd, uh, Senator Daniel Hastings of Delaware and Representative Chester Bolton announced that the Republican Party had merged their senatorial and congressional campaign committees into a single organization independent of the Republican National Committee. Uh, before this merger, the two committees had hired Sidney Brooks, longtime head of research at the International Telephone and Telegraph, the ITT, uh, which was one company that had gone to extraordinary means to continue trading with Nazi Germany after the war broke out. So there's sort of in the upper levels of government and business, there are these Nazi sympathizers that are making moves to try to maintain contacts with Germany. And we will see that there is contact between Brooks and Pelly. Uh, a couple weeks after this merger, Pelly meets in New York City with Sidney Brooks. Uh, who himself ran his own fascist group called the Order of 76. And the meeting ended with an agreement to merge that order uh, with the Silver Shirts. After the meeting, Brooks then stops at the German Consulate General. Documentation reveals that Brooks was the son of Nazi agent Colonel Edwin Emerson and used his mother's maiden name to hide his father's identity. Emerson had been a, so this is Brooks' father, Emerson, had been a war correspondent covering the Russo-Japanese War when he was taken prisoner by the Japanese. During World War I, he reported from the German side of the war, and in 1918, Guatemala charged him as being a German spy. He was later accused by Austria and Switzerland as engaged in subversive activity, and then in 1933, he founds the Society of American Friends of Germany, and then the next year, we're back up to 1934 again, he meets with Adolf Hitler. Uh, Pelly develops connections to a number of extreme far-right groups, but he frequently quarrels with their leadership. These friendships usually end when Pelly tries to absorb their organizations into his own, or when his esoteric religious beliefs become too much for them to stomach. By 1936, he's running for president. He calls FDR a Dutch Jew and praises Hitler as an enemy of communism, and he promotes the idea of dark souls, by which he means Jews, communists, and papists, with conspiring against the United States. Uh, so this is a quote from a speech of his. He says, I propose from this date onward to direct an aggressive campaign that shall arouse America's Gentile masses to a wholesale and drastic ousting of every radical-minded Jew from United States soil. Uh, he also pledged to establish the fullest and friendliest understanding and international relationships with all rightists and anti-communist nations abroad, particularly Germany, Austria, Italy, Spain, and Japan. So this is another quote from Scott Beekman's book here. Uh, Rocked by defections, exposés, and government investigations, the Bund, by which he means here the German-American Bund, uh, beginning at its 1938 convention, adopted a free America approach as a means of self-preservation. Uh, Nazi Germany ended all official ties with the organization that year, and the Bund inaugurated a campaign to reach out to other domestic supporters of Hitler, including Pelly. Beginning in the summer of 1938, the Bund began purchasing large quantities of silver shirt literature, 30 to 50 copies of every pamphlet Pelly issued, and 25 to 30 copies of each issue of New Liberation. 
Um, unfortunately, it doesn't. Well, maybe maybe fortunately, depending on your persuasion, it, the group is disbanded in 1940. It uh, runs into financial problems and it's not going anywhere politically and it's kind of racked with internal discord. And uh, the members of the Silver Legion kind of go on to do their own thing. Some members go on to found groups such as the John Birch Society, Posse Comitatus, and the Aryan Nation. And they also include kind of notable names such as Gerald L.K. Smith, who was a prominent clerical fascist, and Francis Parker Yockey, who was uh, the writer of uh, the book, I think, Imperium. Um, in 1941, Pelly is imprisoned for sedition after Pearl Harbor, despite the protestations of Charles Lindbergh, and he's there sentenced to 15 years in prison, though he gets out on parole in 1950. So that's kind of the end of his political career, and at that point, he really just becomes committed entirely to this occultic, esoteric, religious kind of thinking and uh that becomes his main thing from there on i think it's kind of interesting to see him uh making trips into europe and and meeting some uh some of the actual political figures involved in european fascism just especially in light of of crowley doing some similar things and having some similar contacts with those those figures there seems to be a, a tendency for Western esoterists to to go over and actually meet with fascists of various descriptions. Yeah, and that's still sort of a pattern that we see today. You know, yeah. uh, it's always kind of been like this international super friends thing. Yeah. So let's move on to the fun stuff now. Uh, we've gotten all that fascist kind of activity out of the way. Now we can really dive into his doctrines and esoteric theology and all this kind of fun stuff. Uh, which is really what he gets into in 1950 once he gets out of prison. Uh, he expands upon his liberation teaching, which is what he referred to his doctrines as, and he starts an occult group called Soulcraft, as well as publishing a racist magazine named Valor and a book of his automatic writing called Star Guests. He uh, ends up borrowing the notion of advanced ancient civilizations from the Theosophists, which promotes the idea that global cataclysms resulted in the destruction of highly developed societies in Atlantis and Lemuria. According to Theosophical teachings, Lemuria housed the third root race, the first race to possess physical bodies, reproduce sexually, and bear responsibility for good and evil, while the fourth root race, the last remnant of whom perished a few thousand years ago, called Atlantis home. The Atlanteans are especially significant to Theosophists because they were the alleged composers of the Stanzas of Dyson, the book of knowledge upon which all world religions are based. So you can see here we're going deeper into woo land here with uh, you know <laughs> yeah. Lemuria and Atlantis and stuff like this. So I'm going to be quoting from the Beekman book quite a bit here. He says, uh, For Pelly, tangible proof of the existence of these ancient civilizations can be found by studying the timeline preserved in the Great Pyramid of Giza. Pyramidists believe the passageway from the pyramid's entrance to the king's chamber is a prophetic account of the history of humanity. They discern the course of human history by dividing this timeline into pyramid inches. The pyramid inch, slightly larger than the English inch, as one five hundred millionth of the Earth's axis. 
Using this measurement, the pyramidists determined that the timeline runs from 2624 BC to AD 2001. For most of its course, the timeline is one inch per year, but at the year 1909, it becomes one inch per month, thereby giving even more specific prophetic messages. Although pyramidism reaches back into the 19th century, Pelly developed his ideas on the matter from David Davidson, pyramidism's leading 20th century proponent. Pelly's view on the Great Pyramid were taken almost verbatim from Davidson's writings. Pelly's support for Davidson's theories derived in part from the pyramidist's claim that May 29, 1928 represented a significant date in human history. So that's the uh, night that Pelly's Seven Minutes in Eternity occurred. Following this lead, Pelly promoted the idea that this date began the time of tribulation, which would end on September 16, 1936. Pelly placed great significance upon these dates, as well as several other pyramid dates, such as January 31, 1933, which is the day Hitler took power, August 20, 1953, supposedly the end of the Piscean Age, and September 17, 2001. So, kind of close on that last one there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think pyramidism was like his big thing prior to getting into the UFOs, and this mm -hmm. was like a... I don't know if he had gotten into this after uh, getting out of jail in 1950, but definitely like Davidson, the earlier ideas, like uh, there was like a huge like rush of like Egyptomania, like around that time, like the 1920s, uh, I guess H.P. Lovecraft, like a lot of his stuff about Egypt, like Neolothotep or, or whatever, that kind of stuff, like, uh, you know, they opened King Tut's tomb. And that just created like a whole big obsession for this stuff. I guess the idea of pyramid power uh maybe caught on a little bit later yeah interesting it seems like pelly's i don't know if this is pretty common for all these guys but it, pelly seems to be using this to like establish like these prophetic dates like setting up this timeline this is going to happen on this day this is going to happen on this day in particular he believed that the 2001 date september 17 was going to be the second coming of christ and Davidson declared that this day would be the final cleansing of the whole world for the full extension of the kingdom of heaven to all the earth. Well, he was off by just six days. Yeah, yeah, a little bit off there, but uh, got to give him credit, I yeah. think, for a little bit. So let's get into the actual like theology that Pelly has, because I think it's kind of interesting. So he posits three significant forces in the universe. First and foremost is the universal spirit from which all things proceed, and which is of all things the substance. Second is the spirit of the group, responsible for animating all the lower forms of creation. And finally, there is man, consisting of mind, body, and soul. The divine mind created every soul 28 million years ago. Pelly notes that there is now in each human soul a separate and distinct development of universal spirit, which has a body for expression, and which is yet able to be aware of its kinship with divine essence, so that there must be an instrument for this awareness, and this instrument is the mind. Okay, so it's kind of typical mystical kind of stuff. So here's his deviations from Christianity. Like, he's often kind of claiming to be you know, a true Christian and, and all this kind of stuff. So this is, this is what it means for him to be a Christian. So he believes that the Christian God is one among many and that it may meet and counsel with other gods. 
and that this god is a very old spirit living on a distant planet that is responsible for our solar system. Um, the great avatar is Jesus and visits this god for instruction. Pelly notes that there is no god in the sense in which the mortal theologian uses the term, because to name and personify infinite spirit would be to limit it. Uh, at the same time, though, he says that Christ is a spirit made manifest for the moment, pure spirit, as spirit is the one law and force and harmony that is love. Uh, he maintains that he's a Christian with all these beliefs, and that he receives messages directly from Christ, but that his beliefs must be separated from the man-made dogma of religion. He calls the professors of, these, of this dogma to be Bible thieves, that have buried the truth that Christ was the greatest psychic to ever trod the earth, and that they've corrupted his teachings. He views the Old Testament as a record of lives and works of the negative introvert element in the human race, the effeminate manifestation of human nature in the social state, and he views the New Testament as the record of the lives and works of the positive extrovert element, the masculine ex exposition of aggressive and constructive spiritual accomplishment. He believed that it was his responsibility to instruct humanity in an accurate understanding of this positive extrovert element. And once the truth was disclosed, the true orthodoxy of Pelly's version of Christianity could be revealed. So yeah. I think that this, you can start to see how this stuff is really fundamental to the, like the fascist ideas and stuff. It really kind of grows from this stuff, I think. Yeah, it's interesting to see like the transition happening because, as you said, like a lot of his ideas like are very familiar, and they're just based on the idea, uh, like you know, something that's happening since the 19th century uh, and maybe even a little bit earlier, where people's like old religious convictions are breaking down, or more people are beginning to doubt like the sort of traditional uh, narratives that they've heard, but still have an attachment to the idea of life after death, or want to approach it in some kind of scientific way, and you can see kind of the transition from some of that stuff which is more uh what his older material is rooted in you know the idea of uh spiritual matter or, or, or spiritual bodies or a separate spiritual existence and the immortality of the soul uh in sort of a non-doctrinal way kind of evolving to deal with distant planets or you know uh kind of the the transition of these these ideas to sign of uh the outer space which is like a, a growing fascination and yeah, I think that the Old Testament versus New Testament thing, the introvert negative element versus the positive extrovert element, um, that's such a super common idea in like mysticism in general uh, throughout like the whole 20th century. I feel like this idea like underlies a lot of things. And like, I think a great example actually of how this like concept like uh, creeps into a lot of like mystical ideas is the movie The Dark Crystal. Uh, the Jim Henson movie. <laughs> okay. I don't know if anyone's ever seen this, but in the movie, there's like, uh, I mean, I'm kind of giving away the movie, but it's like, you know, a 30 year old movie. So whatever. In the movie, there are these uh, like wise, like kind of Muppets, uh, like they're kind of blind, uh, like they're sort of, you know, lovable type Muppets uh, that are called the mystics. Um, and then there's these sort of dark, like, sinister, like, kind of bird-like crocodile beings that are, like, the Skeksis. 
and they that's what they're called the Skeksis and they have these like shrill you know horrible voices and it was all based on like kind of these very 80s like spiritual ideas but you can kind of see like you know one is kind of wise mystical being it's kind of their almost slothish and, and lazy and the Skeksis are like very concerned with materialism and they actually eat they're like cannibalistic too you know uh so you know and if you look at these Skeksis like if you look at the puppets like from the Dark Crystal these are like you know the most anti-semitic puppets like you could possibly <laughs> imagine you know but in the end like these two beings like they fuse and they become you know like ascend like uh you know these transcendent beings where the Skeksis and the mystics merge together to become like their true selves because they were split you know at some point and the idea of like you know the kind of negative jewish element and this other you know sort of positive more enlightened element being these two kind of yin and yang of humanity uh you know that's like a you know a very common idea and this this movie is like a great example i think yeah it was also explicitly like a nazi idea too like that you know more or less depending on the individual but like this idea of you know replacing uh the old sort of religions with a new positive christianity which would get rid of a lot of like the hebrew side of it kind of thing you know and get and focus on, uh, you know, the, um, yeah, like the more powerful Christ is like conqueror kind of thing. So, yeah. Right. Um, okay. So we'll move through this. I don't want to dig too much into the theology cause it's really woo woo kind of stuff. Um, what I'd like to jump into now is the, star guest stuff all this thing about like aliens and other worlds and everything so he has this idea about where humanity comes from and so the idea is that they developed from the migration of souls which he calls star guests from another planetary system sirius so i don't know a whole lot about this but i know that this idea of sirius being the the origin of humanity exists in alistair crowley and other people along this line so um, that's probably where he got it from, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun stuff. So they migrated to earth 30 to 50 million years ago where they incarnated themselves in animal forms. And first they chose bodies with the body of a lion and the head of an eagle and the sphinxes in Egypt are a tribute to this form. So this kind of reminds me of what you were saying just a second ago, Khaled, about the interest in Egypt and all that that was going on at this time. Um, so after this first body, they decide to switch to an ape-like body in order to mate with primate life forms, which causes the difference between humanity and other primates. So the kind of offspring of this mating is, is what gives birth to like the humans that we have today. Uh, this shift to an ape-like body and, and the creation of, the, of humans uh, causes matter to become their fetish and shibboleth, and they lose control over thought generation. And while they are in part of a constant oscillation between the earth plane and the thought planes, humans need assistance from their mentors because they are prone to irrational behavior thanks to the dormant racial and sodomic heritage within their physical body. Gradually, they become the races of man as society now recognizes them. And now this is where Pelly gets a little inconsistent and kind of talks over himself in different ways. He doesn't have a a single theory on the development of different races 
he the, like if you look at them and you try to put them all together they're not really consistent so it's hard to talk about like what his one idea is here but this is what i put together so he argues that different races reflect different planetary origins of the original star guests and that the white race came from sirius he explicitly says this at one point so let's go with that now at other points he talks about how like the evolution of people over time some of them are more evolved than others and that you know accounts for this like hierarchy of races that he that he has i don't know if if all these are um reconcilable or not but anyway in in other words there's always this thing of humanity comes from another place and we have this hierarchy of races that is a result of this origin story uh so he saw this as a reconciliation of creationism with evolution um he refers to the apes uh these like ape-like creatures as the daughters of men and the star guests are the sons of god and therefore man like humanity is half monkey half angel and the missing link which was something that people have been talking about for a long time uh has not been discovered because it is spiritual and not biological so this is based on like the idea of the nephilim you know Mm. the uh like uh, yeah, the sons of God and those men is like actually like a biblical idea that's sort of interbreeding uh, between them. Which of course yeah, like uh, you, the sort of modern day ancient aliens people continue to have a field day with. Um, yeah, if like uh, I feel like I've mentioned this on the show before, but like a lot of this like uh, instability, like you know these uh, new religious ideas, like uh, all like uh, you know the the spiritualism that's like we kind of see evolving into the more new age beliefs like now if we like going through his his life trajectory you know a lot of it has to do with like the confusion over evolution and maybe like even excitement over evolution like a lot of people saw evolution because people didn't really understand like you know evolution in the same way that like we do today people thought like oh maybe i can like focus really hard and then evolve myself to be (laughs) you know like a super being or something like that you know uh so a lot of that like the whole reckoning with like the monkeys like you know you can see that playing out like even uh in this like you know years after uh these are things like you know but i guess it still was like a heated issue at the time even yeah that's interesting you know you mentioned ancient aliens and that's that's one thing that i do want to get into probably in the next episode um there's stuff that people say on twitter these days where they will kind of call out ancient aliens as being racist because it's sort of saying that uh, non-Western people just couldn't do these things without alien assistance or something along those lines. And aliens I, are non-Western. <laughs> that's, <laughs> sure that's a good, good. point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I I agree with the point being made there, but uh, I think the whole racist uh, lineage or the racist heritage of that kind of ideas it, it goes back further than just like it's it's rude or insulting in some sort of incidental way i think that uh if you explore this kind of stuff here you kind of see that this isn't just like incidentally racist uh that it it's racist in a in a very deep sense yeah i mean there's kind of like two versions like uh in fact i think that william pelly was into the idea of like british israelism like the idea that you know, people from, like, Anglo-Saxons are the real Israelites, like, who are referred to in the Bible, and, like, you know, kind of, like, Khazar-type theories where, you know, the the Jews that we know today, like, have somehow usurped this title that actually belongs to white people, like, these types of ideas, like, there's, you know, kind of a, a crossover between, like, 
the kind of, oh, like, really in the ancient past, like, all these wonders that we can attribute to non-white civilizations, like, well, like, it was actually white people who did that, versus, like, you know, oh, it was actually aliens that did that, because obviously they couldn't have done it, and then, of course, there's a combination between the two, which is that, you know, white aliens did it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's really interesting to me, this whole aspect of things, not only because it, it's very unintuitive, like... You, you don't automatically connect the dots between like fascism and UFO ideas or whatever, but it, it sort of explains the need that fascist thinking has for these sort of alternative theories and stuff and why there's any, like all these kind of weirdo origin stories that they have and the, these mythologies that they have. I think if you look at it in, in the way that that stuff works with the occult and the esoteric kind of stuff, the spiritualism, I think you sort of start to see that they are serving very similar functions within the, the narratives that you have the world as it is, uh, as most people see it. And that's a lie in some way. And that there's a hidden reality, the way things actually work. And that there's a, a small group of people that know how to explain that to you that can, that really know what's actually going on and they have this mission and you should follow them and you know it, it's it works with like if you're just some sort of like blavatsky kind of grifter person who's just trying to scam people but it also works apparently if you have this far right political movement that you're trying to get uh, you know moving so yeah I, I think that's why this stuff is worth looking into besides just like pure entertainment value yeah, I wonder actually if he was aware of like the the big Nazi interest like in UFOs uh, that they did have like a uh, you know the Glocka and it, like their sort of like weird bell device that they tried to create. I don't really know how it was supposed to work, but you know it's something that like a lot of like you know uh, people point to as the evidence of like a Nazi interest in UFOs. And I remember uh, in Michael Aquino's book Mind War, uh, you know, Michael Aquino have been the show to talk about before, like, uh, his, uh, book about how Nazis using advanced, like, uh, you know, uh, mental warfare techniques to peacefully win World War II. I believe that, uh, Die Glocke, which is, like, uh, kind of like a Nazi UFO experiment factored in, into that in terms of how they were able to, to achieve Mind War. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely, like, uh, there was, you know, a uh, uh, early Nazi interest in kind of, uh, you know, these these craft or, or saucer type uh, technology. Yeah, definitely. I I, I don't know that Pelly uh, was aware of that. I haven't seen any sign of that. So, I, I wonder if he was reading pulp science fiction in in prison because you know around around the same time L. Ron Hubbard uh, in the fifties there is coming with a very similar story, I guess, inspired by his uh, pulp sci-fi career about, you know, like, transmigration of alien souls or whatever. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know that Pelly wrote pulp fiction stuff in his uh, okay. early years. Uh, I don't know yeah. that it was sci-fi, though. Yeah. Um. All right, so... Yeah, so Pelly has an explanation for the fact that there are these, uh, you know, these religions, these kind of like man-made dogmas, as he calls them. He says that the mysteries and falsehoods of Christian scripture make sense when it's understood that extraterrestrial material was both involved and forgotten. 
Faith in gods built out of longing for the spiritual home from which so many long eons before uh, he had started out on this cosmic journey kind of account for the fact that people are worshiping these gods. Uh, Pelly persisted that following an erroneous established form of Christianity, such as Roman Catholicism, indicated a very young soul. He also has this idea of three castes of mortal life. At the bottom are the beast progeny of the ape mothers. In the middle are the reincarnated spirits of the original Syrian migration. And at the top are the goodly company, which I, I think the goodly company is a biblical term that he sort of appropriates here. Uh, to refer to 144,000 souls who followed the great avatar here to promote his teachings and put humanity on the path of righteousness. So uh, that is, I assume, like other sort of mentor prophet types like himself. Um, he also has an idea of different planes of existence that form the heart of his soulcraft doctrine. Uh, he believes that all souls go through earthly incarnations, usually every 500 years or so, in order to increase their spiritual awareness. Uh, and while they are between bodies, they inhabit purely spiritual planes, which of which there are six or seven beyond the veil, as he terms them, uh, and they correspond to a soul's level of spiritual development. Uh, eventually, these souls will undertake platonic development that lead to their assignment as a deity over a distant planet, which I believe is a, a similar thing in Mormon theology. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, so earthly existence is for educational purposes uh, in order to develop the individual consciousness to complete the realization of itself and of its source. Yeah, so... Let's get into the introduction of UFO material to his doctrines, and then we'll wrap it up. So, the prophetic date of August 20, 1953, which we talked about and was supposed to signal the beginning of the Age of Aquarius in his Pyramidist timeline, uh, it, it comes and goes and nothing happens. Uh, so, what he ends up coming up with is that the UFOs that have been floating around are uh, in the popular culture are, are what this, this is all about. So in 1947, you have the Roswell reportings, and you know these become a very popular thing that everyone is excited about, and Pelle sort of latches on to these to explain his prophecy. So he claims that the occupants of the spacecraft would provide humanity with new knowledge and help usher in the Aquarian Age. He attributes enormous power and intelligence to the spacemen, and he claims that they were mentors for humanity, but that Earth residents might scare them away with their warlike tendencies. He especially exemplifies, most distressingly, the violence of motion picture westerns, which seemed to be such a thing that bothered him throughout his life. <laughs> Um, he also posits that the saucer men constitute the advance guard of Christ cohorts, prefacing the second coming, and yet these semi-angelic people were not permitted to alter Earth destiny. Uh, he also speculates that the saucers may serve as vehicles to lift the Christ people off Earth to leave the planet to the purely materialistic souls in a sort of rapture-like event, and that no other happening that has occurred in the world within historic time matches its importance. 
Pelly had clearly read widely in UFOlogy materials that had begun to be produced since 1947. He demonstrated familiarity with the leading works, and he cited them frequently, and he accepted every account that he uh, encountered, even refused to retract support for specific works that were demonstrated to be hoaxes. I think that's interesting in light of what Mike said about kind of the pop sci-fi like during like the time like of the like real excitement over flying saucers like there isn't like a clear line between like what's like you know a true account or like what's like science fiction you know like there's like a you know a science fiction story might be like represented as a memoir and like uh that type of thing and in fact even today when people are into this stuff like, I mean, Don's point about the Manchurian Candidate, like, people even now will take things that are, like, presented as fictional and say, like, no, actually, this really did happen. Um, so it's, you know, uh, kind of, like, uh, there isn't a, a clear distinction uh, really between them, especially, like, you know, in the first big blush of, like, the saucer enthusiasm. Yeah, it actually, another person who's interesting to think about in light of this is L. Ron Hubbard, who, like, definitely bridges the line between these two worlds, and, like, also obviously has that idea of, like, souls uh, being confined on the planet, like, forgetting who they are, um, and someone who, like, you know, did a lot of science fiction and then founded a religion. Right, yeah. It's sort of starting a cult very similar to Pelly's. Um, I just want to draw some connections between this and the technocracy episode that we recently did for the Patreon. Um, there we talked about Edward Bellamy and also L. Ron Hubbard briefly. Uh, so, you know, we've talked about maybe Pelly was familiar with Hubbard or, you know, something along those lines. But he certainly was familiar with Edward Bellamy and uh, frequently would cite him. There's an entire chapter in No More Hunger that is, discusses one of Edward Bellamy's short stories, and a lot of the political ideas are pretty similar. Now, Edward Bellamy did not have any sort of racist angle to his politics at all that I am aware of. He was, you know, purely talking about the idea of an industrial army that would just organize production in a in a very efficient way that would kind of resolve everyone's needs and and that sort of thing and uh Pelly kind of piggybacked on that and went his own direction with it but you know I just wanted to draw that, those connections for people who listen to that technocracy episode so there's another thing that I wanted to discuss before we wrap up here which is just Given that, you know, World War II recently is over when he gets into this UFO stuff, um, Nazism and all that kind of thing is is very unpopular in the United States and, and really in the world at large at this point. Um, and yet I think Pelly kind of has the same kind of motivations that he always did, which is elevating his you know supreme genius to the level that he thinks it should be and to kind of gain a following and uh to have this kind of like grip of power over people or whatever and uh i just find it kind of interesting the way that these this kind of like fascist thought whether the like the the real kernel of motivation there is to promote this kind of politics in the first place or whether that's a vehicle for his just like lust for power in the first place or whatever it kind of shifts into this ufo stuff and i think it's important to kind of be able to look at things in this light and to understand that things will will shift in accordance with like the popular mood so in the 20s as we mentioned like 
being openly anti-Semitic was really not uh, not uncommon or not a real problem. Uh, after World War II, that becomes really problematic. It's really even seen as like un-American. So you, you kind of have to shift gears and the UFOs sort of work uh, to serve the same function of providing this mythology around the need to follow like a, a kind of a mystical elite that know the true nature of the world and all this kind of stuff. Um, it, it's sort of interesting, you know, it, there's, uh, there's so many commonalities and similarities between the two kind of movements that uh, and you can see that today, you know, you look at people like Alex Jones and, and all this sort of stuff, like they promote a lot of really goofy ideas and all that. And you kind of wonder, like, why are they doing this? You know, if their goal is to promote a certain kind of politics, you'd think that they could just kind of get, you know, cut right to the chase and and dispose of all that kind of silly stuff. But I think this if you look at it the right way, I think you start to see how that stuff is really key to it because you need to sort of monopolize the, the narrative that people buy into yeah the silly stuff is almost a point in a way because like i mean it goes back to the thing that we talked about at the very beginning where he was upset that he toiled away uh you know for jewish hollywood and all he got in return was money you know like it's the absence of the feeling of spiritual fulfillment that like you know I don't think it's because of, you know, the whom uh, he's working for, but like, uh, you know, it's uh, a real thing that, that people manifest in a lot of the time, like it gets channeled into these sort of dark directions, but it has like, you know, that source. That'll do it for this episode. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here. This will kind of put a cap on Pelly himself. Uh, I think we provided a lot of material. I think don't know quite how long this episode is at this point, but it seems to feels feels like a long one. So uh, we'll do a second part to this where we will get into the kind of movements and different people that he specifically influenced. And I especially want to look at things like Operation Artichoke, Operation Bluebird, uh, these like government operations and, and government agencies that uh, th 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 there's really weird connections between Pelly and the people who influenced and like actual government work. You know, um, it, it gets pretty wild uh, in the 60s and 70s. And uh, it, it's possible that there's kind of similar things going on today that we're really not aware of. So we'll keep digging. We'll see what we come up with. Um, hope you enjoyed this, guys. And thanks yeah. for coming on again, you know, uh, Mike and uh, Khalid. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, yeah it was great having, having you guys on. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll catch you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you uh, enjoyed this episode and you'd like a second episode of You Can't Win Every Week, you can subscribe to our Patreon and you'll get access to that. You'll also get access to our Discord where you can chat with us in our community. And don't forget that we have a curious cat where you can submit questions anonymously that we will answer on the air. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again next week. Thanks, guys.